Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. Turn in your Bibles with me, if you will, please, to the book of Philippians. Again, we're in the book of Philippians for a little while. This morning I want to talk about our faith. Our faith. Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. <clears throat> we focused for a number of weeks on verses 9 through 9 and 10 on this prayer of the apostle for the Philippian Christians. And in the course of our looking at this prayer, we've discovered that the Apostle Paul prayed that the Corinthians, the Corinthians, the Philippian Christians would enjoy an ever-increasing love for the Lord and for each other. That is something that is desperately needed in the Christian church today. It is something desperately needed in an individual Christian's life today. An ever-increasing love for the Lord, for the things of the Lord, and for the people of God. He prayed that they would desire and apply in their lives an in-depth knowledge of God's truth so that they would know what is best for them in their Christian life. He also prayed that they would be a people of integrity. A people of integrity. And as Christians, that they would not be a stumbling block or an offense to others. And then as we looked at last Sunday, he prayed that they would persevere, that they would endure in righteousness until the day of Christ. And all of this to the praise and to the glory of God. Take a look at this again, if you will. Philippians chapter 1. Stand with me in honor of God's word. In this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and to the praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. We ask his blessing upon the study of his word. You may be seated. Our joy, our joy in Christ Jesus. And that's what this letter is really all about. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the Philippian Christians to express to them the joy that he had in the Lord. Now remember, uh, the Apostle Paul is in prison. He has been put in prison because of uh, preaching and teaching and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with others. And so the townsfolk got all upset about it, didn't like him preaching and teaching Jesus Christ, and so they put him in prison. But while he is in prison, he's writing this letter to the Philippians, and he's telling them that while he's even in prison for the cause of Christ, he rejoices in his spirit. He has joy in his spirit. Again, I want, to, I want us to understand that there is a difference between joy and happiness. Happiness is circumstantial. 
Some of you are happy this morning because you've graduated and you've got a summer full of no school ahead of you. Some of you, especially parents, are not happy because your students have graduated and for the summer there is no relief in sight for you as they're at home waiting for you to fix their breakfast, their lunch, and their dinner, wash their clothes, do this and do that. That's all circumstance. That's the difference uh, in being happy and not being happy. But joy, joy is not circumstantial. Joy is relational. We have happiness because we're sailing down life and all sailing is smooth and the wind's at our back and the sun's in our face and everything is just hunky-dory and we're happy about that. But that can turn south in a moment, can't it? All of the wonderful, glad-hearted things that you can enjoy today can be gone tomorrow. But joy, joy is relational. Joy is built upon relationships. And relationships bring an individual joy. Now those relationships can go sour. Those relationships can be broken. Those relationships can fall through. But the joy that the Apostle Paul has is not in other individuals, even though he rejoices with the Philippians and the progress that they're making in their faith. His joy is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ will never fail. The Lord Jesus Christ will never leave us. He will never fail us. He will never disappoint us. Uh, the relationship with him can never be broken. Scripture tells us, the Lord has said to his people, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans that there is nothing in heaven on earth or beneath the earth, nothing past, present, or future, nothing uh, that can ever separate us from the love of God. The relationship that we have with God in Christ Jesus can never be taken away from us. And we can rejoice in that. And so this letter is about one's joy in Christ Jesus. Jesus, our joy in Christ Jesus increases as we mature spiritually in Christ Jesus. And our spiritual maturity increases as we apply these seven principles of spiritual maturity in our lives. And these seven principles of spiritual maturity increase as our faith in Jesus Christ increases. And our faith increases to the praise and to the glory and to the honor of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we grasp these fundamental principles of spiritual growth and development, Faith will increase in us, and our joy in the Lord will increase on us, and our praise and our honor and our glory to the name of Jesus Christ will likewise increase within us. And so I want to add this element this morning about the matter of our faith. Now, faith is not just a God thing. Faith is not just a God thing. Everyone has faith, whether they're Christian or not. Everyone has faith, whether they realize it or not. Everyone has faith, whether they call it faith 
or not. Faith is a common principle in everyday life. Every conscious, active, vibrant person exercises common or conventional faith every day. For instance, when you walked into this building, when you walked into this building, you're trusting in the architect and the contractor and the construction workers who built this building. You have faith in their expertise that uh, they know what they're doing and what they're doing is according to uh, the plans that have been drawn up and have been executed correctly. Otherwise you wouldn't be in this building. You'd be afraid to enter this building if you weren't sure that they knew what they were doing. When you deposit money in the bank, you're exercising faith that that institution will keep your money secure for future use. Otherwise, you wouldn't deposit your money in the bank. When you're sick, you exercise faith in a doctor, in the drugs that he or she prescribes, in the pharmacists and the pharmaceutical companies who produce the drugs, and in the drugs themselves. You put faith in all of these things that eventually you're going to feel better. You're going to be made well because of your visit to the doctor and everybody else that's involved in your visiting with the doctor. You exercise faith in every bite of food that you eat. You exercise faith in every drink that you drink. You exercise faith in the very air that you breathe that these things are going to keep you alive, that they're not going to add to your discomfort or make you miserable, that, that you're eating healthy food, drinking uh, healthy drinks, and breathing healthy air. You put faith in those things. We trust in certain things and in certain people that we believe can be of benefit to us. That's a type of faith. Saving faith, however, saving faith is different from common or from conventional faith. And the difference is the object of that faith. Saving faith is a faith in what we can, in what we can, in saving faith, the object of our saving faith is in one who can do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. We put our trust, we put our faith in someone who is able to save us an action that we can never produce for ourselves. Jesus Christ, whom God the Father has sent to bear our sin upon the cross and to offer His life as an atoning sacrifice for that sin is the only one that God has provided, the only means that God has provided to save us from sin. This faith, however, listen, this faith cannot be compared to religious faith. It cannot be compared to religious faith. The Muslim puts his faith in the Quran and in Muhammad. The idolater puts his faith 
in idols. The humanist puts his faith in himself and other human beings. The philosopher puts his faith in his own ideas. The materialist puts his faith in physical resources. And the religionist puts his faith in his religion and good works that are prescribed by his religion. None of these can save the human soul. None of these can remove the penalty of sin from us. None of these can satisfy God's wrath against the individual who has sinned and rebelled against him. None of these can save because the object of faith in each and every case is unable to save. They don't have the power, they don't have the ability to save you from sin and to keep you from experiencing hell for all eternity. Now what does that have to do with the Apostles' Prayer? In Philippians 1 verses 9 through 11, we've read that. Since this letter to the Philippians is about experiencing joy in Jesus Christ, and since the desire of the Apostle is that the Philippian Christians would become more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, Romans chapter 8, through these seven principles that he was mentioning to them in the prayer that he offered up for them, the object of that joy and the focus of that spiritual maturity is Jesus Christ himself. The object of his faith and the focus of his joy is on Jesus Christ. See what he says here in verse 11 as he closes out verse 11, to the glory and to the praise of God. Now the apostle said, to the glory and to the praise of God, which can only come when Jesus Christ is the object of our faith in daily living. The true focus, the true focus and the goal of the work of faith, which never ends with us, or the church, or the denomination, is in bringing glory and honor and praise to God. Do you know that's why you're here? Do you know that's why you're here? I've said it before. You've heard me say it before. The object of being saved is not to go to heaven. Now, if you are a Christian, you will go to heaven. But that's not the reason God saved you. Salvation is not an event that just secures a place for you in the eternal kingdom of God. If that were the case, you would have died the day that you were saved. If the goal of, going, uh, the goal of being saved is going to heaven, you wouldn't be here today if you're a Christian. But God has kept you here, has kept me here for one purpose and one purpose only, and that is that we'll bring honor and glory and praise to the name of Jesus Christ. And there are a myriad of ways that we can do that. Amen? There are a myriad of ways that we can bring honor and praise and glory to the Lord. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. How unsearchable 
are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who, become, who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. All that we do, all that we become in life, all that we are now, should be to the glory and to the honor and to the praise of the Lord Jesus Christ. In every song that we sing, and I know some of you say, well, you know, I can't sing. You know, I, could, I, can, I couldn't carry a tune in a bucket if I, even I had a bucket. And I know some of you say, well, I can't preach and I, I can't teach, you know, because uh, I just, I, I don't have that gift or that ability. And I may not be able to be the best person in the world to share my faith with another individual. There are a lot of things I, I can't do. That's okay. If God wanted you to do those things, he would have gifted you to do those things. But there are some things that God has blessed you with and has gifted you with that you can use to bring honor and glory to the name of Jesus Christ. You can be a prayer warrior. Every Christian can pray. Amen? Every Christian can pray. You can be a prayer warrior. You can be an agent of mercy to an individual who is hurting. You can be an agent of love and compassion to someone who is in need. You can bring joy to someone's life by coming alongside them and being a partner with them in their ministry. You can be a disciple learning how to grow in your faith to the point where in spiritual maturity you can step out and venture into areas of service and ministry that you never even thought about. There are things that you can do. But all of the things that we can do do not bring honor and glory to ourselves. We are not here for us. It's not about me. And it's not really about you. It's all about Jesus. We are to bring honor and glory and praise to the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to look in Luke chapter 10. You're in Philippians 1, so turn left and go to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 10. We'll begin at verse 1. Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 1. The Lord Jesus was with his 12 disciples, and there were other disciples besides the 12. Understand that? Uh, Jesus chose these 12 men particularly to be with him, uh, to be trained by him in carrying on the ministry after his crucifixion resurrection and ascension. But there were other individuals, there were uh, many other individuals that followed Jesus and followed the twelve disciples. Here in chapter 10 of Luke's gospel, now after this, the Lord appointed 70 others, 
So we know there were at least 70 other individuals who were following with Jesus. And he sent them two and two ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. And he was saying to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Now this is a metaphor. Jesus is kind of using a mini parable to explain to the disciples what, he, um, what the goal of their discipleship is really all about. When he talks about the harvest, he's talking about there are scores of people all around us who are ready for the kingdom of God to come. The harvest is plentiful. Many, many people who are ready for the kingdom of God to come. But the laborers are few. There are not a whole lot of folks going out there and talking to people about Jesus. There are not a whole lot of people going out there and declaring that the kingdom of God has come and the king of the kingdom is right here with us, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So get the picture here. Jesus is giving these disciples an understanding of what he wants them to do and why he wants them to do it. I want you to go out and tell people that the kingdom of God has come and that I, the Messiah of God, am the king of that kingdom. So get that in your mind because that's what chapter 10 is all about. And he was saying to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech, that is to beg or to pray, the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into the harvest. Go your ways. Behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no purse, no bag, no shoes. Greet no one on the way. And whatever house you enter, first say peace be to this house. And if a man of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And say in that house, eating and drink, stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you, for the laborer is worthy of his wage. Do not keep moving from house to house. And whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you and heal those in it who are sick. And say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your city which clings to our feet, we wipe off in protest against you. Yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. All right, you got the picture? Jesus is sending these 70 other disciples out in pairs, two by two. And he says, as you're going out into these villages and as you're going out into these towns, I want you to go and I want you to approach people and I want you to declare to them, peace, peace. I come as a friend. I did not come to rob you. I didn't come to take advantage of you. I come in the name of of peace. Now notice he says, I don't want you to take a bag with you. I don't want you to take extra pair of shoes with you. In other words, I want you to go depending upon God to supply your every need. I want you to go trusting that God is going to take care of everything that you need as you go in my name to declare my kingdom to the people. 
And if they receive you, then stay with them as long as they will have you there. Eat what they set before you. Drink what they set before you. Talk about the kingdom because I want you to declare to them that the kingdom has come near them. But if they won't receive you, if they won't have anything to do with you, then just shake the dust off your sandals and move on. Just move on. That, were, that was the assignment that the Lord gave these disciples. Verse 12, I say to you, it will be more tolerable in the day for Sodom than for that city. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will be brought down to Hades, that's hell. The one who listens to you listens to me, and the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. Now, he sent them out. Now, it doesn't say how long they were gone. So we skip forward for a little bit. A couple of days, maybe. A couple of weeks, doesn't say. But in verse 17, the 70 returned with joy, saying, the Lord, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. We went out and we did exactly as you said. We followed your instructions. We depended upon God to provide for everything that we needed. We declared the kingdom has come. We talked about you and the various things of that kingdom. We were received by many. We come back to you rejoicing at the great things that have taken place. Now these were not trained guys. Understand this. These were not seminary graduates. These guys didn't go to Bible school. They didn't have a diploma in religious studies. But what they did have in common was they had been with Jesus. And because they had been with Jesus, that's all they needed to go and tell other people about Jesus. And that's, that's, that's you and that's me. Now, I've been to school, yes. But I was a witness for Christ long before I went to school. I didn't have to go to school and, and get a degree in, in Bible and then go to seminary with a degree in, in all of the things that I got a degree in to be a witness for Jesus. I was a witness for Jesus before I ever enrolled in college or seminary. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to be a witness for Jesus. You just need to spend time with Jesus. Amen. You just spend time with Jesus. They went and they came back rejoicing later on after Peter, James and John had witnessed the transfiguration on Mount Tabor they came down from the mountain with Jesus and they were confronted with a fearful and a frustrated father I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 17 this was months and months and months later after these men had gone out and after they had experienced success in their ministry, after they had been a witness and after they were key in bringing in that harvest at that point in time, 
a year or so later. Matthew chapter 17, verses 14 through 18. Jesus had taken Peter, James, and John. They had come to Mount Tabor, which is near Philippi. And they went up to the mountain, and Jesus was transfigured before them. And Peter, James, and John saw the glory of the Lord as it shone through his flesh. And he saw Jesus speaking to Moses and to Elijah as they were talking to him, preparing him for his death. And at this point in time, it's about six months before Jesus goes to Jerusalem and is crucified. Now, while Peter, James, and John are up on Mount Tabor with Jesus, the other disciples, the other nine disciples are down at the foot of Mount Tabor, and there's, there's something going on down there. There's a disturbance. There's, uh, uh, there are voices that are shouting, and uh, there are, so there's a disturbance that's going on as they're coming down from the mountain. Verses 14 uh, we're in chapter 17, verses 14 and following. And when they came to the multitude, a man came up to him, falling on his knees before him. That is, a man came to Jesus and fell on his knees before Jesus, saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and is very ill, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not cure him. Now I find this strange. I find this odd. It was just a year or so before that Jesus gave these disciples power and authority to not only bear a witness of the presence of the kingdom of God with them, but also they testified that even demons were subject to the authority that Jesus gave them. Now just a year later, there is a, a man who has a son who is very ill. And when you read the parallel passages in Luke and in Mark, this boy is demon-possessed. He is possessed by a demon. And this demon is tearing this boy's life apart. Uh, this demon has caused the boy to be mute. He can't speak. It caused the boy to be deaf. He can't hear. This, this demon has taken control of his body and throws him down onto the ground. The boy can't even control his own body. The demon has taken control. Throws him into the fire and the boy is burned. Throws him into the water and the boy is near drowned. And uh, no one can control him. His father can't do anything with him. And no doubt that this father had taken his son to as many doctors as he could find. No doubt he had taken this boy to the priests and asked the priests to sacrifice a sacrifice for the boy, to pray for the boy, to anoint the boy, to do anything and everything they could for the boy to be healed from this demon. And then the father hears that Jesus is in the area. And so he brings his boy to Jesus. But Jesus is not there. His disciples are there. But his disciples probably told this father that Jesus is up on Mount Tabor there with Peter, James, and John, and they're doing something up there. We don't know what, but they'll be back directly. Well, you're the disciples of Jesus. Can you cast this demon out of my boy? But they couldn't. They couldn't. 
They were powerless. They did not, for some reason, have the authority to be able to deal with this demon that was killing this young man. Why? Why? Just a year later, that power and that authority was gone. What happened? In verse 19, the, disciple, the disciples asked Jesus, after Jesus had cast the demon out of the boy, they asked Jesus, why could we not drive it out? How come, Jesus, how come we couldn't cast this demon out of this boy? We were able to do this a year ago when you sent us out into the towns and villages, but how come we were not able to do so this time? Notice the response of Jesus in verse 20. Because of the littleness of your faith. The littleness of your faith. How would you interpret Jesus' response? If you were one of the disciples standing there and Jesus said, it was because of the littleness of your faith that you were not able to cast this demon out, how would you understand what Jesus said? was saying to you. How would you take that? What does the littleness of your faith really mean? Had the disciples become egotistical in the power and authority that Jesus had given them over the demons and so their egotism was blocking that power and authority? Did they attempt to cast out the demons by their own power and by their own authority as disciples of Jesus? No, I, I don't think that was the case. I don't think that was the case. I don't think the littleness of faith refers to size. I think it refers to strength. It refers to strength. The power had diminished in their faith. It is a faith that hasn't developed through use through exercise, through application in their lives. True, a year earlier, they were able to cast out demons. They were able, uh, demons were subject to their authority. But what had they been doing since? And this is a problem that a lot of Christians have. This is, in truth, this is a, a problem that many Christians suffer from. We love to be on the mountaintops with Jesus. We love to experience these wonderful, these powerful, these glorious, these magnificent things with Jesus on the mountaintop. But when we come back down into the valley, all too often we do not want to face the reality of the life that we have been given to live and the lives of those that are all around us. People who have problems, people who have issues, people who have concerns. We get tired of that. We don't want to hear that anymore. We, want, we would rather be back up on the mountaintop with Jesus rather than down in the valley with burdens and issues and problems and concerns and sins and people who have them. And sometimes, dear friends, rather than exercising what we have learned on the mountaintop with Jesus, 
We want to tuck that away into our lives, in our heart, in our mind. We want to reflect upon those things, but we seldom apply those things. We don't allow the Holy Spirit of God to take what we have learned with Jesus on the mountaintop and let it flow through us to touch other people around us so that their lives can benefit from our mountaintop experience. We want to hide. We want to withdraw. We want to put the phone off the hook so we don't have to answer it. We don't want to answer the door. We pull the shades because we don't want anybody coming in and bothering us. We want to be left alone. But that's not why Jesus saved us. And that's not why Jesus has given us authority and power in His kingdom work. He gives us these wonderful opportunities so that what we have learned we can apply into our lives and we can use that to minister to other people. But when we refuse to, listen to this, when we refuse to do that, our faith will not grow. It will not develop. It will diminish in power and in strength. Oh, we'll still have faith in Jesus. We won't lose salvation. But the faith, the strength of that faith will bleed out of us. Just like an individual who has been to the gym for a year and has pumped iron and, and done this and done that and, and he's strong and he's vibrant and then he lays off for another year. Those muscles begin to atrophy. The, he loses some of that strength. Not all of it. But he does lose some of that strength that he once had. Why? Because he did not exercise. He did not apply himself to those disciplines that were necessary to maintain that strength in his physical body. And the same is true in the spiritual life. God has given us, through his Holy Spirit, faith to believe in Jesus Christ. And he has placed in our lives spiritual abilities, spiritual powers, and spiritual authorities to do that ministry that he's called us to do. When we exercise that, when we apply that into our lives, and we actually get out of our cave and go out and minister to people, that faith increases. That faith strengthens. That faith becomes more and more vibrant in our lives because it becomes vibrant in the lives of other people. But as long as we stay in that cave and we don't go out and we don't minister to others, that faith begins to lose its strength. And that's what happened here with these disciples. Jesus had commissioned them to go and to tell people about the kingdom. And they were excited to do that because they had been with Jesus and they were able to do that because he has given them responsibility. And they were happy to go out and share that responsibility. And they came back rejoicing at the success that they were able to experience. But what had they done in the year after that? We don't find them doing these kinds of things again. And so they were content to follow Jesus around. They were content to listen to Jesus and whatever Jesus was saying. They were content to watch Jesus perform miracles and do this and do that and the other. But what were they doing as individual disciples of Christ? Beloved, 
That can be the pattern in my life and in your life. It's an easy thing. Listen, it's an easy thing to come to church and listen to somebody teach us the Word of God. It's an easy thing to come to church and, and to listen to someone sing. It's, it's an easy thing to come to church and list, listen to someone... Well, maybe it's not an easy thing to listen to someone expound the Scripture, but a lot of us, we, we find that that is sufficient for us. Just go to church and, and feed off of the others who are ministering, but when we leave church, what do we do? What do we do with what we've learned? What do we do with what we've experienced? What do we do with what God has opened our eyes to? And maybe that's a reason why some of us are so weak in faith that we will not attempt to do anything in the name of the Lord. We will not attempt to step out and minister to another individual because we believe we have weak faith. And maybe it is. We do have weak faith. Why? Because we're not stepping out and we're not ministering as we ought to. The disciples had saving faith. That's why they trusted in Jesus to supply their needs while following Him for three years. They had obedient faith. That's why they did what Jesus commanded them to do. They had faith to believe that they could minister to this boy. That's why they tried to do that. But their faith hadn't grown in power from the mustard seed faith that can easily be crushed into a mustard plant strong enough to provide a resting place for the birds of the air. They hadn't progressed in their faith. So again, what does this have to do with the Apostle Paul's prayer? Look again at Philippians chapter 1, verses 9, 10, and 11. And we'll close. Note the words of the Apostle. Philippians 1, starting in verse 9. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that, so that, these are progressive steps, so that, you may apply the things that are excellent in order to the next level, in order to be sincere and blameless until the next level, until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and to the praise of God. You see, having an overflowing love is important. Having an abundant love for the Lord God and for the things of the Lord God and for the people of the Lord God is a wonderful thing. It's a necessary thing, but it's the first step. It's not the only step. This love for the Lord should give us a hunger and a desire to study God's Word and to know God's truth. And that should then give us the hunger and the desire to apply that truth into our lives. And when we apply that into our lives then we're able to understand what's good for us and what's not good for us. And when that happens, then we are able 
to have a life of integrity. And then we won't be a stumbling block to other people. And when times get tough and when people don't like to hear about your Jesus and they don't want to listen to your testimony, that's not going to phase you. You'll persevere through that. You won't give up and turn back. You'll stick with it because... In all of these things, you have brought honor and glory and praise to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, which has increased your faith and has given you a greater joy in the Lord that you would, wouldn't otherwise have. So it's all a progressive step into spiritual maturity that ultimately brings the Lord God praise, honor, and glory. And I have to ask you the question, in your life, can you look at your life today and say, in all things that I do, am I bringing honor and glory and praise to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? Great faith trusts God when there's no food in the pantry. Listen to me. Great faith trusts God when there's no food in the pantry. Great faith trusts God when there's no job to go to. No one else to rely on. No cure for what's ailing you. No way out of a seemingly impossible situation. Great faith trusts in God when these and other such issues are evident in your life. But great faith is not granted overnight. Great faith is developed over a lifetime. Over a lifetime. And it grows greater and greater when it's exercised daily to the glory and to the praise of the Lord God. Take the glory and the praise for your successes and that's all you'll have for today. For tomorrow it may be gone. But give honor and glory and praise to God who works in you both to will and to do His good pleasure and you will become spiritually mature. You will have a life filled with the fruit of righteousness. You will minister powerfully and effectively to others. And you will lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven that will never pass away. Let's pray. Father, as we come to the table, as we focus our attention now upon the sacrifice of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we might have forgiveness of sin, that we might have the promise of eternal life, that we might have the blessedness of fellowship with you. I pray, Lord God, that we will come to the table in a worthy manner, that we will not allow any sin to stand between us and you that would prohibit us from taking the cup and taking the bread in a fashion that does not bring honor and glory to the name of Jesus. This I ask in His holy and precious name. Amen. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. I've been washed in the fountain and cleansed by His blood and joined with Jesus as we travel through
God bless you. Have a great week in the Lord. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.